A reading from the book of Genesis. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 4, starting with verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, There is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The word of the Lord. The gospel according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. 
As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have, come, have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. The gospel of the Lord. So good to be back with you all. Um, missed you all last week. Really thankful to Father Christopher Brewer for being here last week. Um, I had a chance to listen to his sermon just this morning, actually, and he did such a great job, and I knew that he would. And thankful for his presence here. I'm thankful for you guys getting to know him, and the connection with our diocese is a really good thing. So on to our readings this week. Today, we find ourselves in the season after Pentecost, which is often also called the season of ordinary time. So this is going to be a long season. It's a long season in the church calendar. You'll notice this. It's our longest season. And we'll walk through the Gospels. We'll walk through ways that Jesus has taught and healed and been present with people, stories of journeying, of walking with the Holy Spirit, and what all these kind of things mean. Our color for this season is green, but you'll see all kinds of different colors as we live into the colors of nature and the colors of the earth and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that is the season of ordinary time or the season after Pentecost. But I have to tell you, this was one of the hardest things for me to adjust to when I started with the church calendar was just saying that part of the church calendar was ordinary time. Because as a church planter and as a pastor growing up in the church, like we were just always taught, don't ever tell your people that any Sunday is ordinary right? It's all got to be extraordinary, right? So we try to make sure that, gosh, you know, and, and part of it in defense of church leaders is church people in the congregations tend to kind of judge whether, whether they're going to go to church on Sunday based on how cool that Sunday is going to be. So if the pastor is going to respond to a hot button cultural issue, I'm definitely going to be there. If they're going to sing my favorite worship songs, and I know that, I'm going to be there for that, right? And we want it to be extraordinary. We want it to be special. And so even getting out of our mouths, the idea that there's ordinary time in the calendar is sometimes difficult. But I would also say it's incredibly wonderful and full of grace 
And here's why. If you think about it, we live so much of our lives doing things like driving to work and from work, going to school, waiting in lines, checking emails, doing reports or paperwork, whatever equivalent that is for you, checking our bank balance, (laughs) Uh, changing diapers, eating, exercising, ordinary things. And it is so comforting to know that the Spirit is with us exactly in those times, just as the Spirit is with us in the life-altering moments. So today, our stories we hear are of faith, of following God, of journeying. We start with Abram. In our Old Testament reading, there's this guy, Abram, and we were given part of this reading way back in Lent. So you may be kind of familiar with the outlines of this. But we're told early on that Abram and his wife, Sarai, are barren. They're unable to have children. And they're very old. And yet, it is this couple through whom God chooses to make a people, to bring about a promise. And this makes sense because our story as the people of God is all miracle. Being established as the people of God is not anything we've done on our own. It's all God. It's all God's work and action. And of course, it's true in our lives that every gift, we we said it today in the prayer, every gift that we receive uh, is from God. Right, Every good gift that we receive is from God, even the ones that look like they're from us. So think about, gosh, I worked really hard to build a business. Well, that's me doing it. Or I put food on the table for my family. Or I chose to get married to this person or to have children. All of these things, that even those things that we think are our doing are actually gifts from God. But God chooses this family, the family of Abram, in such a way that it points to God's self, the one who brings fullness out of emptiness and life out of death. But God doesn't just say to Abram that he'll give him kids. All the fertility gods of the ancient world promised this. You could have kids if you worship this God. No, this God says he will make him a great nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by this family. Unlike the pagan gods of the ancient world, God's not looking to get something from Abram. He's not trying to be grabby or selfish or manipulative. This creator God is not dependent on people. He's not dependent on Abram. Yet he chooses relationship with him and with them. So God speaks and a faithful people are called into being. God disrupts Abram. He tells him to go on a journey, which will be incredibly difficult. He calls him to a life of risk based on the promise. And he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Several of the words here are tied back to earlier in the story of Genesis. If you remember at the Tower of Babel, and I know we've talked about this story a lot lately, but at the Tower of Babel, the people had tried to make a name for themselves. That's why they built the tower. They're trying to achieve a name, to give themselves a name. Well, God says to Abram, I am the one who will make your name great. I will give you a name. We still live in a world where we're trying to make a name for ourselves. We still run around frantically trying to find 
our name, our purpose, trying to come up with or create our name based on all kinds of things. We're building towers. We're lashing out against each other. We're choosing self-rule in an effort to carve out who I am, the name I've given for myself. And in the midst of such a world, God steps in and names a person, names a family, not because of anything they've done, I was talking to a pastor about this at one point, this story, and, and he said something telling. He said, he said, so what do you think Abraham did that was so special that God chose him? Because he must have been a talented guy. I was like, no, that's like the whole point. <laughs> He's just an average dude. And God chooses this average dude, this pagan guy, and disrupts him simply by grace. Now, that doesn't mean there was anything wrong with Abram. Abram is made in the image of God, and God chose him, but, but this is an act of grace. God calls Abram. God always calls his people to radical reorientation, to remember who created them, who loved them first, and who names them. Israel is blessed, and that blessing carries with it a blessing for all people, for the nations. So Israel is always called to be an outward people, a people in public. And it's not necessarily that they're called to go and do something, but they're called to be something in the world, to be a blessing to the nations. Now, Abraham doesn't see all of this in this moment. For him, the call is simply the call of all Christian disciples today to take the step out of one's current situation and to follow. St. Anthony, one of the Desert Fathers, says of this reading, and he went without hesitating at all, but being ready for his calling. This is the model for the beginning of this way of life. It still persists in those who follow this pattern. Wherever and whenever souls endure and bow to it, they easily attain the virtues, since their hearts are ready to be guided by the Spirit of God. So that's just these first three verses. God calling Abram and his people to this amazing, beautiful thing of blessing the world. And then verses four through nine get really practical. They're just the circumstances of Abram's life and what he's doing. This is a story we see that involves journey. Abram takes a journey. It depicts God's faithfulness from point A to point B. And as he journeys, Abram even walks to the promised land. This is so interesting. So Abram is on this journey and then it says he goes to Canaan. But God tells him, he says, this is the land I'm gonna give to your ancestors. But this land is not for him at that moment. He is in the land, but he doesn't possess the land because this isn't just about the land. It's about faith. It's about trusting in God. Now, I don't know what your point A and point B is today, if there's something that you're anticipating, that you're moving towards, if you feel like in your life you're on this journey from this thing to that thing, but whatever it is, you might take a moment and just kind of bring that to mind. As Americans, we tend to want to be settled. I find myself saying a lot, and I hear a lot of other people say, well, as soon as things settle down for me, <laughs> then everything's going to be fine. Things are crazy right now, but hopefully next month they will settle down. You've, you've heard this. You've said this before. As Americans, we long for the day when we can be settled. But the way of following God is never fully the way of settling down. 
This is clearly displayed in this family, Israel, who's always moving, always active in the world. One of the earliest references to what we know as Christianity in the New Testament is it's called the way. This is the way. It's a, it was a path that people were to follow. And we find in the story that it's the way of suffering. It's the way of the cross. But specifically, it's also the way to Jerusalem. So you notice the disciples, as they follow Jesus, Jesus the whole time is going to Jerusalem to his death and resurrection. So it's this way and this path. So in that way, it's the same journey the children of Israel are on because they're going to Jerusalem. They are headed to the promised land. Notice that this journey in the promise takes place over the span of generations. Now, in modern Christianity, we tend to look only at what God is doing in me now. What is God doing in my life today? What is God doing right now? But the biblical story encourages us to take the long view. Abram must live in faith for something he has not yet received. He is not in possession of the land. The Canaanites are in possession of the land. In fact, if you look at the promise that's given to Abraham and then you look at the Canaanites and you go, they're the ones who are fruitful. (laughs) They're the ones who have the land. They are the ones that have everything that they need. Abraham is trusting God's promise for a distant future. Abram does as the Lord tells him, verse four, and then I think it's interesting. It says he does as the Lord tells him. And then in verse eight, he builds an altar to the Lord. In the ancient world, building an altar was a sign of faith. It was a way of saying, yes, the one who made this promise is true. And I continue to trust in that. When Paul reminds us um, in his epistle reading, he reminds us that Abraham's offspring was called to be the heir of the world. Those are Paul's words, which is so interesting. This is another way of saying they will bless the whole world which is kind of weird because if you read the Old Testament, there's this almost obsession with the land, the promised land. That's our inheritance. That's where we're going is the promised land. But the New Testament tends to understand something different, that the purpose of the land wasn't just so they hold on to this one little piece of land, but so that they would be a people to bless all lands and all places, that the whole world is to be blessed. The whole world is holy land. If this is true, it also means The doors are open in the family of God to the foreigner, to the outsider, to the uncircumcised. This also means that God's purpose is to put the entire world right. That this land that's given to Abraham's Abraham's descendants is like a microcosm. It's like an antecedent of God's ongoing purposes as the loving creator and judge of the world. And Paul says, It can't be based on the law. We can't get into all the details about what Paul says here, but but it can't just be based on obeying the law or based on circumcision, whether you're circumcised or not. Paul says it has to be for everybody. So it's an invitation for the Gentiles, for the outsiders, for the pagans to come into God's family just like Abraham did, which is by faith. Verse 17 says, He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. This is the God who creates out of nothing. God tells the guy who can't have kids that he's going to be the father of many nations. This is new creation. 
And I love how Paul says it. He says, God's promised this to Abraham and then Abraham hoped against hope, hoped against hope. Abraham faced the fact he was facing death. So he's not in denial here. He says, hey, I realize I'm old and my body's not gonna produce kids. My wife's is not, like this is not gonna happen according to normal circumstances. And yet because you said this is true, I will hope against hope. He knew that God would do as he promised. And then in the final verse, Paul summarizes the importance of Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus died under the weight of sin. When God raised him from the dead, he did not only affirm Jesus as God's son, but he affirmed those who believe in him as part of God's family. God has been faithful to the promise he made to Abraham. Abraham had faith in the life-giving God, the one who makes a new family out of nothing. And that same God has created life and has created a new family, now Jew and Gentile, outsider and insider, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then finally, in our gospel reading, we're given like these three rapid-fire stories all together. In fact, I might look at it and go, there's too much for this gospel reading. But they do go together intentionally. They all speak of faith. In the first four verses of our gospel reading, Matthew is a disciple of Jesus. And he's a tax collector. And he's called by Jesus. He's called into this life of discipleship. And then Jesus goes to a party at Matthew's house. And while he's there, the Pharisees question why Jesus eats with a tax collector and with tax collectors in general and with sinners. Now, in the ancient world, and I love, you know, we all love talking about taxes, I know. But in the ancient world, taxes were, in ancient Rome, the city of Rome, they were collected by the highest bidder for a collection contract, kind of like we do today. Like there's private companies that collect debt and all that stuff. And so um, in ancient Rome, that's kind of how it worked. But in Palestine, it was a little different. Tax collectors were Jewish people employed as representatives of the Roman government, collecting taxes and generally seeing to the public order. So when Rome colonized a place, when they stepped in and made a, a province or a colony, they liked to employ people of native populations because they would know the local customs and they would make sure Rome wasn't getting cheated and that there wasn't any kind of deceit that was going on. So what happened, interesting, is these tax collectors became representatives of the oppressive pagan government, but they were part of the people, right? They were one of the people, but they represented this oppressive pagan government. So you can see why the people hated them, because they represent our oppression, but they're one of us. It's like treason. It's betrayal. So tax collectors were looked at by their fellow Jews as suspicious, if not just outright hated by them. Matthew, the tax collector, is presumed to be the writer of this story. So he's telling his own story here. In Mark and Luke's gospel, he's not even called Matthew. He's called Levi. And the reason often given for this is that Mark and Luke wanted to hide the fact that Matthew was a tax collector. They didn't want necessarily to show that there was a tax collector among Jesus' earlier disciples. They even omit the description of him as a tax collector in their list of the apostles. It also may have been that Levi was his original name, and then once he became a disciple, he changed his name to Matthew. We, we don't know. But if Matthew is the author of this story, if he's telling the story right now, and he's telling the story of his calling, it's so interesting because he does so in the midst of a section on miracles. 
So he's telling all the miracles of Jesus. And then in the middle of it, he goes, and then he called a tax collector. He called me. Why would he do that? Well, on this day, during Matthew's shift, a young prophet springs by proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is so dramatic for Matthew because he sees it as a calling life out of death, that something new has happened, something new has changed. In fact, verse 9 even says, Matthew arose, which is resurrection language. He sees his call to discipleship as a kind of resurrection. The Pharisees have trouble with this. There were a bunch of laws for table fellowship at this time. They were more like customs. And it was important function of social and religious convention among many groups in the ancient world that we eat with these people and we don't eat with these people. And there were a few groups at the time that really emphasized the boundaries of table fellowship, how important it was that you eat with certain people and you don't eat with other people. Now, in our modern Western culture, when we eat, let's say we all go to a restaurant after this, it would be really weird if we all ordered food and then we said, just put it all in the middle together and then we'll kind of share it all together. That would be kind of odd. Today in our world, we go and we get our own individual plate <laughs> and then we eat of that. Well, in the Western or in the, the ancient world and then also in many countries today, they eat more family style where, I mean, I remember going to China. They, they literally put it all in the middle and you're given a plate about this big and you take two or three bites and you put it on your plate, but everything else is for everybody else. And that's more how they, how they ate in the ancient world. So when you eat with somebody, you're dipping in the same bowls. Um, you're, you're participating in the same thing together. You're actually eating together. It showed a sense of solidarity that I'm in this with you and we are sharing of table fellowship together. So the Pharisees are outraged that Jesus is dipping bread with Matthew's friends. He's becoming friends with them, the ones who work for the enemy, the ones who oppress us financially, the ones who touch Gentiles all the time. Tax collectors were seen because of this as being ceremonial, ceremonially unclean because of their consistent contact with Gentiles and because they worked on the Sabbath. In fact, um, they're lumped in here, tax collectors and sinners. Sinners were also seen as unclean, but because of their sin. Well, in Jesus, the world is flipped upside down, or we might say is flipped right side up. Everything is different from how it was before. Jesus eats at Matthew's home. And the way this story is told is so interesting because the Pharisees are not invited to the meal. They're kind of like, peeking in at the meal. So we don't know if they're standing at the door and just watching Jesus do this or what it is, but it's really strange. And so then they ask his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call the not righteous, but sinners. Jesus sees himself as a doctor who's come to heal the sick. He has come to offer the kingdom of God to those who needed it and were humble enough to accept it. The Pharisees considered themselves healthy before God because they follow the law and they have the right sacrifice. 
but they're blind to their own sickness. Jesus says mercy is more important than having the right sacrifice. Mercy is more important than your boundaries. Being there for the sick and present with the sick is more important than the lines that you draw. Brennan Manning, and I would encourage you to read anything he's written, but he writes, Here is revelation bright as the evening star. Jesus comes for sinners, for those as outcast as tax collectors, and for those caught up in squalid choices and failed dreams. He comes for corporate executives, street people, superstars, farmers, hookers, addicts, IRS agents, AIDS victims, and even used car salesmen. This passage should be read, reread, and memorized. Every Christian generation tried to dim the blinding brightness of its meaning because the gospel seems too good to be true. One of the things we find about Jesus is he seems fairly reckless when it comes to table fellowship and association. He's really precise when it comes to prophetic critique of the powerful, but pretty reckless when it comes to who he includes and loves. If we're his people, I think this ought to be characteristic of us. And then when people ask, so you're associating with them? We would be compelled to respond by saying, these people know they're in need for love, for community, for hope. Not all Christians seem to know that we're in need of those things. We seem to think we're guardians because, of course, we're the insiders. And I just find myself at a place, I, I'm, I've given up drawing lines. <laughs> um, so much of Christianity and the Christian arguments now are about where we draw the lines. And I'm just I'm tired of that. I hope that the church in this next generation, as it seems like Christianity is no longer this cultural thing that we have, it's kind of going away in that sense, that I hope that we can find ways to draw towards people that might even be radical, things that we haven't done before. In a world before modern medicine and germ, understanding germs and all that stuff, cultures just tried to find ways to avoid getting sick so some of the separation that was created was a way of trying to avoid diseases. You could say it wasn't all necessarily right, but um, ancient societies don't seem to have the same division between physical things and spiritual things. So what happened is there were these purity codes that were present in most cultures as a practical way to stay away from disease and to remain ceremonially clean. So two of the major things that they were to avoid in, in this context were dead bodies, don't touch dead bodies, and women with internal bleeding, including menstrual bleeding. Okay. So one of the things that happens in this story is Jesus crosses the table fellowship line with the tax collector. And now he's about to cross some other lines as well. So there's this synagogue leader whose daughter has just died, and the man comes and kneels before Jesus, which would be really unusual. He's super desperate in this situation because this traumatic and tragic event has just happened to him. And Matthew takes this, and Mark and Luke do this too, and they take this story and they make a sandwich out of it. So you've got the beginning of this story of the synagogue leader whose daughter has died, and then the end of it comes later, and then sandwiched in the middle of it is this story of a woman with the issue of blood. 
Okay, and all three of the Gospels do this at this time. So we're not given resolution to the story of the man's daughter until after we hear about the sick woman. We're told that there's this woman who's been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She boldly, it says, pushes through the crowd, even though she knows she is making each person she touches unclean. Her uncleanness is supposed to, when she touches the edge of Jesus' garment, that's supposed to make him unclean. So at that point, he's then supposed to ritually bathe before he does any more ministry because he's considered unclean. It's supposed to change him, but that's not what happens. The opposite happens. He changes her, and it's attributed to her faith. Now, it is only God who has the power to heal. The woman doesn't heal herself, but faith is the simple acknowledgement that God is the source of life. This woman does that, and because of it, she is changed. Now, when we read a passage like this, our temptation is to try to figure out, at least the temptation of the church growing up with me is, how do these kind of things happen? Okay, so the woman pushed through the crowd. She said this thing or she did this thing. Okay, we need to have that same kind of faith. We need to do all those kind of things as if it's a formula. But that's not really the point. The point is placing the focus on who Jesus is and what he is doing. Jesus is restoring and healing the whole world of its sickness, and he is crossing boundaries to do so. And this is what the one true God is doing and what God has promised to do all along ever since Abraham, healing, restoring, and putting the world right. Now, of course, at the center of all that's broken with the world, everything, is death itself. And human beings throughout history have tried to figure out, hey, could we ever conquer this death thing? If we could ever get over this like, death problem, then everything in our life would be so much better, right? Because that's the final enemy. How will anything be right as long as we're brought down by this? What good is temporary healing if we only die again in a matter of years? This is where we find resolution of the story of the synagogue official and his daughter. When Jesus enters the man's house, so he enters through the house, and he pushes through a crowd too. And he tells them to go away. He says, this girl is not dead, but asleep. And the crowd laughs at him. Jesus takes the girl by the hand, and she got up, or another resurrection word, arose one of the things that this shows us here is it's not a formula. It's not a way of saying, hey, if you do all these things, then everything's going to be right for you. No. It's a way of saying, who is Jesus? This is the one who has final authority over death. That means that even death itself is not something we have to fear. It's not the final enemy. It's not the thing that takes us down. Death is like the foundational fear of all fears. Everything that we're afraid of is often that fear of death. And here we see with Jesus saying that's not the end of the story. I'm going to end here. I know I've gone long today. I apologize. But in the church of my upbringing, so much of our, what we were told to do was to have more faith. Faith seemed like this currency that we could collect and use to manifest all kinds of things in the world, including for our own benefit or usually for our own benefit. But in the Bible, faith is simply trust. I can't do it. I need God. 
That's the thread all the way through. So God promises Abram, who's barren, he'll be a father of many nations. And Abram just recognizes, I can't do it, but I can obey God. (laughs) And then he goes, and then he builds an altar as an act of faith. These are things you do when you know you can't do anything. God is your only hope. And this promise is for all nations and all generations. The whole world is God's, and God's people are called as agents of blessing to the world. But it is not our efforts that achieve this. It is only faith in the one who does it. Abram hoped against hope, believing God could bring life out of emptiness. God brings life out of death, and he's done so decisively in Jesus Christ, raising him from the dead. And then we see Jesus crossing boundaries of sinfulness, status, cleanliness in order to heal. Jesus' words to Matthew, the tax collector, are simple. Follow me. And like Abram, that's what, G- what Matthew does. He just follows him. And even though the religious establishment has rejected him, Jesus eats at his table. Jesus understands that the world is sick. Jesus, the great physician, has come to heal the world. This synagogue leader knows he needs help. The woman struggling with hemorrhages for 12 years knows she needs help. They're at the end of their rope. They've tried all the life hacks, all the strategies, the miracle cures. They have nowhere else to go. This is faith. It brings fullness from emptiness and life out of death. So my question for us today is, where have you felt at the end of your rope? Who are those who you know who are hanging at the end of their rope, who are at this place of full dependence, and I don't know where else to turn. One of the great confessions of the Christian is that God is faithful. God will be true to his promises. Faith is always a journey from the home country to the promised land or from the crowds back home to the place of pain. We're not welcomed into God's family on the basis of anything we've done or anything we've inherited, but we're welcomed in by faith to the one who's raised Christ from the dead. Amen.